Dan Rather is the best at digging up unbelievable stories. But if you're looking for some surprises, check out Music's Greatest Mysteries, the podcast. Welcome to Dan Rather's The Big Interview, the thought-provoking podcast with in-depth interviews with music and cultural icons only Dan Rather can deliver. Each episode will bring you exclusive in-depth interviews from classic rock to country and alternative. We cover it all right here on Dan Rather's The Big Interview. So sit back and enjoy these magnificent stories from the artists that lived it. Here's your host, Dan Rather. Some musicians have a signature song. Some have a signature sound. The legendary Charlie Daniels has both. I have my own style of playing. I have my own sound because I do press too hard on the strings and I do things that uh, would run an ordinary fiddle player crazy, but it works for me. He is a restless musician, never lost for musical inspiration. And at age 77, he's still fiddling his way into the hearts of country music fans. The worst thing you can do is sit down in a rocking chair and let the world pass you by, because it will. But you stay with something you love. Charlie Daniels, tonight on The Big Interview. We got one more song we'd like to do for you. It's called The Devil Went Down to Georgia. There are not very many country music songs known around the world. But then again, there aren't many songs like The Devil Went Down to Georgia. Well, now the devil went down to Georgia and he's looking for soulless steel. He was in the fine cause it's way behind his Its famous fiddle licks are courtesy of country music legend Charlie Daniels, backed by the Charlie Daniels Band. Released in 1979, The Devil Went Down to Georgia won a Grammy and lit up both the country music and billboard charts. It's still popular today, having been downloaded nearly two million times. But I couldn't believe it. Just had to find while some might consider the Charlie Daniels Band a one-hit wonder, those in the country music business know better. How you doing, guys? Selfie it. There it is. He is royalty at the Grand Ole Opry in Nashville, Tennessee. The band has put out dozens of albums and has been churning out country music hits for decades. But as with so many stars in the music business, it was a stroke of luck that gave Charlie Daniels his big break. A chance encounter with music icon Bob Dylan, who came to Nashville in 1969 to record an album called Nashville Skyline. Early one morning the sun was shining, I was a lady in bed. Now, nearly 50 years later, Charlie Daniels is paying tribute to Dylan with a new album called Off the Grid, 
Doing It Dylan. It's the famous songs of Bob Dylan given the Charlie Daniels country treatment. I had never met Charlie Daniels before we recently had the opportunity to spend some time together at his recording studio near Nashville. I came to Nashville in 1967 at the behest of a friend of mine, Bob Johnston. Uh, took over the Columbia operation here, and he said, you want to come to Nashville? I said, well, certainly. I've always wanted to live in Nashville, so I came. And uh, I was kind of low man on a totem pole, you know, when I came. In 1969, Bob Dylan came to town to do Nashville Skyline. And I had asked Bob, I said, anyway, Bob was, was Dylan's producer, along with Simon and Garfunkel and Marty Robbins and Johnny Cash, and the list goes on. I said, anyway, you can put me on one Dylan session. I'm such an admirer of his. I just like to be able to always say I play. He said, I, I, oddly enough, 15 sessions they had booked to do Nashville Skyline. The very first session, the guitar player that was going to play, all the rest of them could not make the first one. So you come, come and play on the first one. So I did. And when I got finished, I was packing my instruments up to leave, and Bob Dylan asked Bob Johnson, he said, where is he going? He said, he's leaving. I got another guitar player coming. He said, I don't want another guitar player. I want him. Those nine words meant more to me and were such a shot in the arm to me and such an encouragement to me because I'd had hit, hit some, you know, pretty hard licks since I'd been here trying to compete. Nashville's a really competitive town. And anyway, uh, it was really encouraging. And, of course, it made me that much bigger fan. And so, anyway, all these years that I have admired Bob Dylan and I got ready to do an album and I thought I... I'm going to do a tribute album to Bob. So we call it Off the Grid, which means it's an acoustical album, the only one we've ever done, the only acoustical album. Uh, doing Dylan, 10 Bob Dylan songs that we took and tried to make our, to put our mark on them. I didn't want to do them exactly the way he did them, but put our mark on them. And of those in the album, what is your own personal favorite tune or you think is the best oh, one gosh. to perform? You know, there, there's a song called You Gotta Serve Somebody that we did a very unique arrangement on. We did pretty unique arrangements on all of them, but uh, the one that is totally different from the way that, that he did it, with a different feel to it and everything, I'm pretty proud of that one. You may be a socialite with a big long string of pearls, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Serve somebody. You're gonna have to serve somebody. Serve you know, the thing about doing Dylan stuff, you never run out of material. I mean, there's just song after song after song. So if I came across one that I didn't feel like we did a good job of, we right here in the studio where we are is where we recorded. And we would be in here with the band, and if, if we started doing something and it didn't feel like it was our, we could put our mark on it. If it didn't feel like it could be us, you know, doing it, if it was too much like the way Dylan did or whatever, we just bypass it and go to another song. So all the songs that we picked out, I feel we did put our mark on. Of the music you have written and recorded, your favorite is? Our signature song, a song called Devil Went Down to Georgia. I mean, that's the one that, uh, if you say Charlie Daniels Band in London, that's probably the only thing they could remember of ours, or Australia or something. So, oh yeah, I know that, that one song. Though I've got something like 50 albums out, and literally hundreds of songs, that would be the only one they would remember. But now, uh, as, as it to it being my favorite song, I don't know if I could say it was. I've got I've got songs that are kind of obscure that I really like. I got a song called Carolina, I Remember You that speaks of growing up in North Carolina when I was a, a young man, you know, a kid well, from embassy on. That means a lot to me. One of the memories that stays on my mind. 
when I do it, uh, I can visualize the things I'm talking about. I can visualize the trees and the river and the road and the two-lane blacktop and, you know, the snowflakes as big as goose feathers and the moon the color of new-made country butter and night sky like diamonds against black velvet from horizon to horizon. When I was a kid, before all the East Coast pollution came up, you could see all those stars, you know. The, uh, you don't, we don't see how much we have lost looking into the sky nowadays because of the pollution that we put out. We can't see the stars. There used to be just a whole blanket of stars up there. But I, that song means a lot to me for that reason. I can visualize these, these scenes as when I was five or six years old. And with The Devil, you wrote it, you recorded it first, and then it got pretty popular and a lot of people wanted to cover it. We know what's kind of strange about that thing, Dan, that we had written and rehearsed an album's worth of material from an album called Me and My Reflections. We had gone, I didn't have a studio at the time, it was back in 79, we were in the studio in Nashville, started recording and said, we don't have a fiddle tune. We need a fiddle tune. Why we didn't realize that before we went in, I don't know. But we took a break. We moved the equipment out of the recording studio into a rehearsal studio. And I had this thing in my mind, devil went down to Georgia. I don't know where it came from, uh, but it came to me. And I said, guys, listen to this. And the drummer started playing. And, you know, that's how we put something together. And we put a melody together. We put an arrangement together. And I went and wrote the lyrics to it and went back and recorded it. If there was ever a song you'd think that it would be a really interesting story about, it would, uh, in our catalog, it would be that one, but it's really not. It's, I've got songs that, that I've written that are a lot more interesting, you know, stories than that, but it just, we needed a fiddle tune, we went and wrote this fiddle tune. So, in search of a fiddle tune, mm -hmm. out came the song by which you're best known, and fair to say, has been the biggest moneymaker for Oh yeah, definitely. Signature song. That particular song really spread our wings a lot in 79 when it came out. It was, it, it was and still is our, if we did a show and did not do that song, people would feel like they'd been cheated. And they would rightfully so because we owe that to them. That's what they, that's, there's still people in this country, that's the only song really they know that, that, that we do. So they came to see that us do that song, and in the meantime, they get to hear all these other things, and they, you know, start appreciating them too. They used the tune in the movie, Urban Cowboy. Mm -hmm. You were in the movie, as yes. I recall. Well, we're in there performing the song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't doing the dance or nothing. <laughs> I guess you didn't know it, but I'm a fiddle player too, and if you'd care to take a dare, I'll make a bet with you. Now you play pretty good fiddle, boy, but give the devil his due. There was a lot of authenticity in that movie that, that, that gets bypassed a lot of times. I mean, they, they created the atmosphere of a, of a Gillies. The kind of people that went there, the regulars that were there five or six nights a week and what their interests were and, uh, you know, the little two-night love affairs and all this stuff that, that went on. I thought they did a great job of it. And they tried to keep the music authentic, too. We were honored to be included in it, and they said, y'all come down here to Houston and be in our movie, so we packed up the bus and went down there, and it was, you know, I think it, I think what that movie did, I think it was, a big, it was a social sort of thing, I think, you know, John Travolta was kind of, he'd just come off the Saturday Night Fever, and he was a huge teenage star, if you will, and so, I think what it did was it legitimized country music in the eyes 
of a lot of people that never had looked at it. They would come in and, and they'd go to that movie and, I mean, here's all these people, these cowboy hats doing the two stuff. I mean, having a big, you know what kind of time they have in a big old Texas beard, you know? Having a big time and people say, well, I want some of that. I'm gonna learn to do two stuff. I'm gonna get me a cowboy hat, a pair of boots, and they did. People wearing cowboy hats and boots around New York City, coming to our concerts. Listening to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. We'll be back with Charlie Daniels. Welcome back to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Today's guest, Charlie Daniels. Charlie Daniels was a child of the Depression era South the only son born into a working-class family. He gravitated to music at an early age, getting his start by singing hymns at church. But Daniels cut his country music teeth as a teenager, playing in person, small local radio. We started at a station called WWDP in Sanford, North Carolina. And it was a low wattage station, but it was, a, it was the station in town, you know, it was one station in town, of course. We played it for in the mornings for a good while, and then we started getting, we got smart, we got afternoon shows. <laughs> we played Saturday afternoon. <laughs> well, what kind of music were you playing? Mainly bluegrass and, well, country. Uh, we played a lot of bluegrass. We were really into Bill Monroe and or Flat and Scruggs and all those people, but we still did some of the kind of popular music. We did maybe a Hank Snow tune or, you know, somebody, a Hank Williams song or something like that, but basically bluegrass. Well, I used to be almost a bluegrass purist. That's all I wanted to hear was bluegrass music. Let me tell you the first money I ever made playing. The friend, this friend of mine who had actually taught me to play, his daddy ran a service station in this little town of Gulf, North Carolina, which was about nine miles from Sanford, just a wide place in the road. And we were sitting down there one Saturday night at his store with a fiddle and a guitar. We were just playing away, you know, and this uh, car stopped by to get gas or something. And there was two couples in it, just two men, two women. They both got out and the lady said, play us something, and Russell popped up, this friend of mine popped up and said, you got any money? She reached in her purse and pulled out four dimes. So 20 cents was my first fee for playing, and we played a couple of tunes for them. But uh, I played anywhere I could. I played, you know, any kind of square dance, any kind of place I could find. And then I moved back to Wilmington, North Carolina, which is my ancestral home, if you will, where I was born. And somebody came up to me and said, we're gonna start working at a beer joint in Jacksonville, North Carolina, which is a home of the Second Marine Division, and one of the few places that had a club population. A so club being a beer joint. A club being a beer joint. Absolutely, that was all it was. That's all they could serve was beer. So I started working up there six nights a week. I had a daytime job, and I did manual labor. In the summer of 1958, uh, there was a, a, things that kind of slowed down, and they were going to lay somebody off. The guy that I worked with was a black guy named Lewis Frost. I never will remember. He trained me. He trained my daddy. My daddy was in the same business. But they were going to lay somebody off. They were going to lay him off for one reason, because he was black and I was white. They would keep me. I knew one-tenth as much about the job as he did. And I said, look, this man's got a family. I've got another job. I've been kind of wanting to leave anyway, so you keep him and let me go. 
never looked back since then, 1958, summer of 58, I left and uh, started playing full-time at the beer joints up in Jacksonville. And then finally ended up going up to Washington, D.C. area and playing the beer joints up there. Did you start on fiddle or guitar? I started on guitar. I started, uh, this friend of mine, I had known him for years. I had no idea he had a guitar. I don't know where he got it from. I never did find out. But you were I went, what age? I was probably 15, 14, 15. I went to his house one day and he had this old Stella guitar. The neck on it was about the size of half of a fence post. The strings were probably <laughs> the ones that came on it. It was hard. They were way up off the neck. And he knew about two and a half chords. I said, oh, you have to teach me that. So anyway, he started teaching me. And we started bugging anybody in the neighborhood that we could find that knew a chord on a guitar that we didn't know. And we just, we were just eat up with it. We were just a couple of young guys that really eat up with learning how to play. So everybody else was gone to the movies, and me and him were sitting there learning to play. So then I started, uh, somebody showed up with a mandolin one day and I took it and learned a little bit on it. The fingerboard on a mandolin and a fiddle are the same. Mm -hmm. So then I got a hold of a fiddle and instead of doing this, you do this and so. What's the difference between the fiddle and the violin? There is no difference. I went to see it's like Perlman at the Opera House here where we're gonna be tonight in fact. And somebody took me backstage and I said, good evening Mr. Perlman, I'm Charlie Daniels, I'm a fiddle player. He said, we're all fiddle players. So if he says we're fiddle players, you know, violin, uh, in my book, The Greatest Violinist in the World, and by gosh, we're all fiddle players. <laughs> well, down here, yes. a little bit in the dark, but uh -huh. over here you have what, a mandolin? That's a mandolin. That's a mandolin. And over here is a That's fiddle. That's a fiddle or violin, if you want to call and it. And the difference between a mandolin and a fiddle is? Well, you, this one, the mandolin, of course, you play it like this. This is electric, so it don't make much sound. And then of course the fiddle, you gotta pull the bone strings to make it work. You just it's the same fingering. You put the fingers. And of course when I do it, you know, I do it all along. I had kids ask me all the time about playing the fiddle. I said, do not look at me when you play the fiddle. I hold the bow wrong. I hold the bow like this. I hold the fiddle wrong. You're supposed to support it with your neck and reach over it like this. I hold it, I support it with my hand. I push too hard on the strings. That's what why it tears me a bow hairs up. So I said, don't look at me. It works for me, it may not work for you. You know, you'll drive your violin teacher crazy. Don't don't play like I do. Look at Johnny Gimble or somebody, you know, some really good fiddle player. But uh, I have my own style of playing. I have my own sound because I do press too hard on the strings and I do do things that uh, would run an ordinary fiddle player crazy, but uh, it works for me, so. Now, did you have lessons? You, did you have guitar lessons, can't read mandolin lessons, fiddle lessons? No, can't read music. The only thing I read is chords, but I can't read notes. You put notes down, it just evades me. I can't do it. Were you ever into drink so heavily you worried about it? No. Ever into drugs? No. Uh, I would be lying to you if I told you I had not, I had not, I had never done any of that because I have. But uh, I have never had a problem with it. How did you avoid that? You know, I had things in my life that were more important than that. I have such a great respect for this business, and I have such a, a had such a burning desire to make something out of my life in it. I loved it so much. I wanted to be a part of it, and I wanted to be successful at it. And I wanted to do it on the big stage. I didn't want to play the beer joints. I wanted to make records. I wanted to do all the the good things. And I found out early on that you cannot party all night and sleep till four o'clock in the afternoon and get up with a
fuzzy head and, and do a good job. So you decide, do I want that or do I want a career? Nothing was going to separate me from that desire. Not Jack Daniels, not cocaine, not any kind of drug or anything. Nothing was going to keep me from that. You and I both know that the road is littered with the career carcasses of people because they were on the road so constantly, either drink, drugs, or what should we call it, an eye for a well-turned ankle. Mm -hmm. Those are the big three. There's so many crashed and burned on that. I've seen it happen, but it's like I say, do you value that or do you value your career? Because you can't have, you can't have them both. Anybody that's coming into the music business because they think it's glamorous, and it is. But if that's all you're coming in for, do yourself a favor and play at the Holiday Inn Lounge on Friday and Saturday night and work a daytime job and stay at home because you're going to be sorely, sorely disappointed. There is so much beneath the waterline. There's so much preparation. There's so much devotion. And it takes staying current. It takes doing interviews. It takes keeping up with everything. It takes keeping the band rehearsed, keeping the band happy. Only the people who have it here and here are going to make it, really make it. I mean, longevity was always the big deal to me. It was not, I want to go in and make a bunch of money and go buy a Greek island, you know. I didn't want that. I wanted to be a part of this business, which I have for 56 years now. Listening to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. We'll be back with Charlie Daniels. Welcome back to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Today's guest, Charlie Daniels. Charlie Daniels is known for his unwavering support of the United States military. He has performed in war zones and written songs like Let Them Win or Bring Them Home, which focus on the sacrifices of men and women in uniform and their families. Say a prayer for Mama. There's someone missing in her family. In 2010, Daniels created the Scholarship for Heroes, Money he raises for veterans who want to continue their education after military service. You know, Dan, I don't think any 19-year-old kid says, well, I'm going to go in the Army and stay for 50 years. I think it's like I will go in and I will do 20 years or 30 years or whatever. I'm going to come out and be a young man. I'm going to go start a horse ranch or I'm going to go be a, a network newscaster or, or I'm, going to do, you know, I'm going to do something else. And then during their service, they're grievously wounded. They lose limbs. They lose terrible wounds. Some of the folks in our program have had awful wounds. And I always put it like in jumpstart their life. Maybe you can't do that horse ranch anymore. Maybe you can't do what you planned on, but there's something you can do. Let us help you do that. Let us get you an education. Let us get you something that you want to do, send you to a fine university, and you can major in what you want to, and you can get out and go on with your life. And it's gratifying. I would think gratifying mm -hmm. might be an understatement yes. with that kind of work with you. Johnny, you perform fairly regularly in front of and on behalf of uh, 
our men and women uh, in uniform. Mm -hmm. From where does that come? Dan, I was five years old when the Pearl Harbor thing happened. I remember it. I remember a cold, cloudy afternoon in coastal North Carolina, and I didn't know exactly what was going on, but we didn't have TV, years before TV, but radio. And all the grown folks were at my grandmother's house, and for some reason the whole family was there, and, and, and they were all ganged around this big old four-mile radio listening to something that I didn't know what, exactly what was going on. I certainly didn't know where Pearl Harbor was. But and it was on somewhere on the other side of the world. Could have been another planet to me back then. But something really seriously was going on. That was my formative years. We lived. Uh, Wilmington was a seacoast town. We had uh, a lot of shipping went out that were in the war effort. We had air raid drills. We had rationing. We had blackouts. We had all the things. That are, that's that was my formative years. And I realized once two things very early. I, I realized that there were only two things that guarded the United States of America. One was the grace of God, the other was the United States military. That was ingrained in my and me very, very early. You gotta honor the people that do it. The, the, the United States military. Ask the Lord to be with him. Have his angels to protect him in the fight. There is something about country music, if you disagree, tell me that even for people who don't particularly like country music or thought they didn't like, mm -hmm. there's something at least special, maybe unique about country music. If you listen to country radio for about an hour, you probably would find some something in there that would apply to your life. Whether it was lost love, gained love, I'm going out tonight, you know, my girlfriend's hot, I can't wait to see her, and I mean, it just, it just deals with all kinds of emotions that people like. It deals a lot with freedom. It's like, man, it's Friday night, and I'm getting paid, and I'm fixing to go out and bust this town wide open, you know? It deals a lot with, uh, you know, being able to, to, to say what you want to and do what you want to, and uh, talks a lot about pickup trucks, and, you know, we were raised that way, you and me. I mean, we were raised on pickup trucks, and, and, and it talks about, you know, the kind of people that want to go out fishing, and it just touches that down inside, or at least with me and a lot of people I know, it touches that deep, deep down inside emotions that you feel every day. Well, let's go down uh, the list. Okay. The litany for country music. Mm -hmm. uh, there's pickup trucks, mm -hmm. prison, <laughs> trains, lost love. Don't forget rivers. <laughs> and rivers. What else have I left out? Oh gosh, uh, drinking. You know, bending the elbow. Well, that's right. Yeah. Uh, tonight, the bottle let me down. The bottle let me down. That's what a great tune, man. Yeah. You want to go back to pick up on something you said mm -hmm. before? You were in North Carolina. You were working at the Creosote, mm -hmm. and the company's going to lay off uh, a man who was of African American heritage. And you said yeah. you stepped forward and said, "Listen, yeah. I have other work. Leave this guy with the job." I'm wondering what there was in your background that led you to have that kind of response because that would not have been a common response in that time, I don't think. It was, it was not as noble as it sounded because I wanted to leave, but looking at it the other way, was it was only common sense. It was not fair. It, it, whether we had both been white or whether we had both been black, it was the right thing to do and it was, it was I was raised with a sense of fairness. Where I was going with that was at that time, 1957, mm -hmm. 58, 58, 1957, 58, 
did you, even in your wildest imaginations at that time, think you would live to see a president of the United States of African American heritage? I did not. I did not. I don't think anybody else did. I don't think anybody. I came up during Jim Crow days, and I came up during a, a, a time when everybody it was the back of the bus, the back of this, the, the separate. You call it separate, but equal, but it wasn't. Uh, the only it was separate, but it was never equal. I never went to school with a black kid in my entire life. Uh, I finished school in 1955. I never, we never had any any black kids in school with us. It was a segregated society, and when you come up in that way, you don't know any different. And when I started, when all this stuff started dawning on me, and I got away from the, I don't know how to say this exactly, but it was when it finally comes to your, your mind, hey, that guy's a human being. Those people are human beings. Same God made them that made you. How would you like to be treated that way? How would you like to be not able to go in a place just because of the color of your skin? Or how would you like to have to walk back past when there's empty seats in the front of the bus or the train or whatever you happen to be riding? How would you like to have to get up and walk past it? The whole bus had been empty. Is that right? Is there anything right about this? Is there anything right about, uh, and, and it boiled down to the guy was black, but he did a lot better job than I did. It was the best thing for him, for me, for the company, for everybody. It only made sense, and it did not make sense to deprive this man of this just for simply because of the color of his skin. Well, now we have, you said, and I would say the same thing. In the 1950s, I did not think in my lifetime, and probably not in my children's lifetime, that we'd have uh, an African-American president. But we have one now. Not only have we, he had one term, he's in the middle of a second term. Now I know, we're not going to get into political mm -hmm. discussion, but I know that you have your differences with him on policy. I do, but not because, nothing to do with his race. None, what's, nothing whatsoever to do with his race. I do have differences with his policies. But I had difference with George Bush and his policies. I had difference with Bill Clinton and his policies. I had difference with every president I've ever known in my, once I was mature enough to understand, you know, what was going on with, with Lyndon Johnson and, and John F. Kennedy and everybody. I mean, it has nothing to do with the race. I don't care what color a president is. I don't care whatever, what his heritage is. I want somebody that's the best thing for the country. And when I don't think they are, I will live in that. And I resent somebody, if I do say something against the president, I resent somebody saying, that's a racist comment. No, it's not. It's a political comment. It's a comment on the job that the man's doing or that he does something that I think is detrimental to the country. It has nothing to do with race. I got past that a long, long time ago, and most of the people who would say that have no idea what racism is. I've seen it firsthand. I've seen people mistreated and pushed off into parts of town that nobody want to live in and, and made to live under under circumstances nobody wouldn't live in for no, nothing other than the color of the skin. It's wrong. I came out of that myself. I know what racism is. Charlie Daniels shows little or no sign of slowing down. This year alone, he will travel close to 100,000 miles and perform over 100 concerts. It's a grueling schedule that means countless hours on his bus. And that's where I met him one evening as he prepared for a concert 
at what's been called country's most famous stage, the world-renowned Grand Ole Opry. Tonight I'm doing two songs I haven't done the opera before, and I'm still thinking about the lyrics on them, for one thing. But I, there's a little circle of wood, and you'll see it when you go out there, about this big around that is right in the center of the stage. And it was cut out of the floor down at the Ryman Auditorium when they moved out here. And every country music star in the world, every singer, Hank Williams and Ernest Tubb and Roy Acuff and George Jones and everybody has stood on that, on that piece of wood and sung. And you got to think about the tradition of this place and what it, you know, what it is and what it, how long it's lasted and what it's meant in my life. It's been part of my life for as long as I can remember. Now, as I understand it, when you walk off the stage tonight, you're going to come to the bus. The bus is going to crank up and you're driving overnight to Florida? Pensacola, yes. Are you mad? No. That's, that's not that far. It's, but this that is, is what you do? Oh, yeah. That is not, if you look back here, that's our bedroom. And I sleep just as good there as I do at my bed at home. Of course, in back in the back, there's a bathroom with a shower. There's a little small kitchenette type thing right here. We have a conference at home. We got satellite TV. We can read. We can. It's like being at home, except you're moving. Now, what about the band? They do or do not travel on They're this bus? They're next door. Their bus is next door. I saw that bus. Yes, so they have their own bus. They have their own bus, and we have a truck for the equipment. We have three diesel vehicles that we travel in. Does anybody ever say, listen, Charlie, I love you, but I want to sleep in the motel tonight? Well, if you work this outfit, you're not going to sleep in the motel unless it's scheduled to be that way because we're pulling out right after the show. When I get through on stage, I walk out and get on this bus. The crew, it takes them a little longer because you got to pack everything up. Right. But as soon as they get through, we're rolling. We have to to keep our schedule. If you want to sleep in the motel, you better stay home. <laughs> there, there are certain things that are that that have to be have, have to be requisite in this job. And one part of it is being able to travel and being able to tolerate long trips. Sometimes uh, I don't like to do it to them, but sometimes there's times we just did. We just came 900 miles this past weekend. I had to be back in town. Do you have the same bus driver regularly with you? Oh yeah, he's been with me for 20, gosh, I want to say 28 years, 20 some years. Because you have to trust years. him a lot you, while you're napping back he's, here. There are time, you know, that's the thing about it is everybody, there are no unimportant jobs. My job is important for about two hours a night from the time I get off the bus to the time I get back home when I go on stage and play. There's times that the, the road crew, they're the most important people in the outfit because they're setting up, they're tearing down. After we all get on the buses, the guys that are driving, they're holding everybody's lives in their hands. They're the most important people in the outfit. Everybody in my outfit is respected. Everybody does a, a good job. I've got people with me for many years. Do you have any fun on the bus? Oh yeah, fun? Oh yeah, I, I do the same thing on the bus, I do it at home. I sit and, uh, you know, fool with my iPad or I get to I watch whatever I want to on TV. Well, so you have your iPad. Mm -hmm. You do Facebook, you do Twitter? But I just do Twitter. I can't keep up with it all. Well, I know there's a theory that if you if you're to really make it in the music business or almost any other business these days, you better be active in, quote, social media. I think social media is very important. You know, I get instant reviews in the shows we do. Every night when we go, uh, there's a certain time on stage when the lights come up enough to photograph the audience. There'll, there'll be enough ambient light to get, and I have my road manager take a picture of it, and I put it up on Twitter every night. And I thank the town that we came to. Toledo, you're wonderful, thank you, and put a picture up. 
and I'll get reviews. I get like instant reviews sometimes. Boy, the show was great, you know, or this or that or the other thing. And and it's like people say when you're coming to town. And I said, look at the schedule, you know. But it's it's a it's a great thing. It's I, my son has literally dragged me kicking and screaming into every kind of technology I've ever gotten involved in because I am not a technical-minded person. I come from the days of a dial telephone or one of these, you know. But I'm still fascinated by technology and I, the capabilities of technology this is just nuts. I mean, it's just crazy just that I can get on this little machine sitting here in Nashville, Tennessee and type up something that goes instantly around the world and people can respond to it. It's just amazing to me. Now you, you look here. Charlie Daniels is a familiar face here at the Grand Ole Opry. He's performed here so many times, his routine is like clockwork. He checks in. Hey, Tony, you gonna let me in tonight? Walks the long, narrow halls. How you doing, guys? Exchanges pleasantries with other musicians and friends. Good to see you, I'm good. You shake his hand? There we go. <laughs> All before heading to one of the green rooms to meet up with his band. Then it's time to break out the instruments and get ready for the night's show by doing what most bands who share this much history like to do, jam out. Would you welcome the Charlie Daniels Band? Charlie! Woo -woo. Then it's showtime. The band plays a song off the new tribute album to Bob Dylan, the classic Tangled Up in Blue. And I was standing on the side of the road, rain falling on my shoes. Heading out for the East Coast Well, you know I pass some dues Are getting food Tangled up in blood But before Daniels leaves the stage He knows what the crowd has been waiting for The unmistakable The one and only The devil went down to Georgia come back to, I should have asked you this in the beginning, but we got off to a good conversation, which I appreciate very <laughs> much. That, two parts to the question, and it is, who are you? First of all, who are you professionally? And then who are you as a person, as a man? You know, the professional part is, is uh, kind of hard to answer. I have, uh, let, let me put it like this. I'd have to live to be 150 years old to accomplish what I want to do. I've got so many things in my mind. I just finished a children's project that I worked on for years. I've just, this is gonna be hard to believe, but actually, literally, I'm involved in writing a symphony right now with, uh, I don't have the time to devote to it. We've got part of, one of the guys that works with me and myself. 
we've got uh, some of it done, but we've got we've still got a long way to go. I want to I want to do it. And I want to get it done. I want to perform it somewhere. You know, I want to see a symphony orchestra perform it. Uh, I write a lot. I'm writing a biography. It's going to take me a lot longer to finish because I feel like I'm still living it. You know, I'm still I, I'm thinking maybe. There's a good possibility that I have not lived the most interesting part of my life yet. Great way to look at life. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm doing. I'm, I, I am. I'm writing. I've been involved in writing biographies. So as quite a, while. a professional, you're a musician. Mm -hmm. You're a songwriter, music writer. I've had three books out and published. And author, if you will. You're an author. <laughs> uh, you're a blogger. Yeah. Uh, columnist, yeah, commentator. That's professionally. Okay. Now. Who are you as a person, as a man? I am a father, grandfather, uh, guy who's in love with his wife for almost 50 years, uh, more so than the day that we got married. Uh, I'm a happy person. Uh, I sincerely do love my fellow man. I do try to live by uh, the golden rule. I try to treat other people like I want to be treated. I'm very opinionated. I'm not bashful about expressing my opinion and I have I'm fortunately furnished with some forums to do it in since kind of being a public sort of person I can you know I can do like what we're doing right now I do quite a bit of this kind of thing although I must say never not on this level you know how honored I am to be sitting here talking to you I'm, I'm undeserving that but I'm no, very you're appreciative. Not. no sir you're not undeserving at all I am deeply honored you would would come and do this because I know this you could be interviewing anybody else in town right now what question have I not asked? I should have asked you, Charlie. Well, you know something that people probably don't know about me. I have to make a confession. I drink Irish breakfast tea every morning instead of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Say it ain't so. No, you wouldn't have guessed that, would you? I still love coffee, but I, 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 uh, I do. Every every morning, I get make me a big pot of Irish breakfast tea. Oh, Charlie. You're in country music. I've just blown my image. It's supposed know. to be coffee in Copenhagen for you every morning. I know, morning. I know. I used to do the Copenhagen too, but it don't go too well with teas. <laughs> Charlie, thank you. My pleasure, sir. Thank I you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And that's the big interview for tonight. We're always eager to hear what you have to say, so please follow us on Facebook and Twitter or send your comments to viewer at access.tv. And that wraps up another captivating episode of Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Now remember, if you love what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And of course, leave us a review and tell a friend. Thank you for joining us for Dan Rather's The Big Interview, where music and conversation unite.